I just quit drinking coffee recently. I don't drink coffee anymore because uh, I was messing with my kidneys. So I, I, I stopped that, and then I just started smoking crack. And, uh, and that was working out for me pretty good. And then uh, I, I had to give that up because of uh, uh, reasons. And uh, so I started doing meth. And meth has really, really worked out well for me. My, my apartment is immaculate. Uh, I, uh, I have all my, my vegetables and everything in alphabetical order. The story you're about to hear can be very uncomfortable and honestly quite disturbing. You know, a lot of guests that we've had on our show, I try and have fun. I make it lighthearted at times and, and I work to balance between the seriousness and the humor that we can find within stories as it can be fun to just laugh at ourselves. It's going to be difficult to present this in this manner today. You know, this episode is going to focus on child sexual abuse, incest, neglect, and other various forms of trauma. Children are considered innocent and will usually believe and do things that they are taught. But how do they know if something is wrong? There's no way to justify bad actions, but this can actually help us maybe understand. Now, I understand that there are individuals who also really dislike my guest today because of reasons, honestly, I'm not fully aware of. Maybe they don't believe his story. And if you are listening, I only have the information that I can acquire from the guest. But I have a hard time believing that anybody would come forward and share this information without having gone through this himself. You know, I'm aware that a family member was directly harmed by this individual. And even if his story is not complete, the impact on some of our listeners can be very positive. Others have gone through this. And if it can help someone, then maybe it's worth the discussion. You know, I believe that for those holding on to anger, onto hate, jealousy, or rage, please consider the possibility of finding a healthy way to let go at some point. You know, it's probably doing more harm to you than the person that you're directing those to. So please stay tuned today for Johnny Rock, and I'll see you in a second. on 7, a problem workstation on 11, and a bunch of newbies to train. I'm going to take the outage. Until you get some help, then I'm going to need you on 11. Yeah. And I'm expecting a full day of inane calls about emails vanishing, so be prepared for that. Who are we going to schedule? I'll check.
life has a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, we're all thrown into this world with no choice on who our parents are or the type of upbringing that we're going to have to. You know, some have great families, while others become, you know, cast into a nightmare that some may honestly never completely return from. My name is Eric McCoy, and this is High Walk Clean. You know, I believe that this episode can help others see that you aren't or you weren't alone in the suffering that you endured. Child abuse is very broadly defined. That can include verbal, physical, sexual, emotional uh, neglect, exploitation, and, and so on. They are all serious. You know, but the one that I see the most in the substance abuse field is sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is a type of uh, maltreatment, a violation, an exploitation that refers to the involvement of a child in sexual activity to provide sexual gratification or financial benefit to the perpetrator. The meaning of sexual abuse is also very broad. And it includes contact for sexual purposes, molestation, statutory rape, prostitution, pornography, exposure, incest, or other sexually exploitive activities. You know, it's estimated that one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18 years old. You know, identifying the number of children exposed to this is difficult. You know, as in 2016, over 65,000 children were sexually abused. However, only about one in 20 cases of sexual abuse is identified or reported to the authorities. You know, those who were sexually abused as a child are highly susceptible to a range of psychological consequences that can occur immediately after the abuse and also over the long term into adulthood. This kind of abuse can disrupt child development. It's adverse effects such as anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, drug and alcohol problems can even persist into adulthood. My guest today has quite a story and is going to discuss something that many of us can't even understand. But a lot of questions are going to develop throughout this show, such as the debate of nature versus nurture. You know, at what point, if any, does a victim possibly become the perpetrator? You know, sympathy, anger, and even disgust may be present with some, but what I encourage is empathy. You know, empathy is to try and understand since nothing can be changed from our past. Empathy doesn't justify actions, but instead can offer insight into the reasons for the actions. You know, I work in the field of behavioral health as a counselor, and I also teach students working to become counselors. You know, I warn all of my students that this field is not for everybody because for them to be effective, they need to be able to listen to stories that can shock them. You know, this wasn't easy for me in the beginning as I was very judgmental, 
But what I learned was that for me to even remain in this field from an ethical standpoint and not violate federal law, which is Title 42, Part 2, <laughs> I needed to stay within certain guidelines, which evolved into being very non-judgmental. And this is going to actually make a little more sense um, as we move forward. My guest today, and I'm very excited to have him on here, is Johnny Rock. Uh, he is an actor seen in movies such as Year One and the Disaster Movie, uh, a recurring role on Tyler Perry's The Haves and the Have-Nots. He became a stand-up comedian at the age of 18. And in 1984, he was a finalist in Showtime's Funniest Person in America competition. In 1988, he began working in radio while living in San Antonio, Texas, where he also owned and operated an Elvis Museum. He is a field advocate for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He owns Johnny Rock and Roll Radio, which is where he currently is. And he is the Louisiana ambassador for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. Johnny, I want to thank you for doing this. Did I leave anything out? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a father and a grandfather. <laughs> father and a grandfather. You know, we've talked a lot of times on the phone. And, um, you know, I know you were very reluctant, you know, on doing this. Um, and I really appreciate your appearance because I believe that you can help someone. And I also believe that you have helped a lot of people throughout your life. And I know that you, you obviously grew up in a very, from what my understanding, a horrific family um, with lots of horrors that sort of evolved through that. And so I wanted to first ask you, what was your childhood like? Well, you know, most of my childhood, uh, I don't really remember, which is, which is still difficult for me to comprehend because I, I talked to so many people that remember who their first grade teacher was, who their second grade teacher was. They can share stories of birthday parties. I do not remember literally any, any teacher, any uh, fellow student from first or second grade from the school. Uh, now I have, I have two stepfathers. My first stepfather, I don't remember any Thing about him as far as you know birthday parties um going fishing or uh anything the only thing i remember about my first stepfather is uh and this is basically my first memory of my mother too is um i remember my mother chasing me down the hallway now i had to be in second grade um for this uh i because it was before I went into the mental hospital, which I'll get to eventually. But I remember my mother chasing me down the hallway with a butcher knife, hmm. uh, screaming that she was going to kill me. And I remember running into my bedroom. I remember going into the closet and, and shutting the door. And I remember cowering down on the, on the floor in the, in, the, in the closet. And I remember hearing, I can still hear it, I can remember hearing the, the butcher knife slam into the door. And, and I remember her being on the phone 
calling my stepfather and telling him that if he did not get home and whoop my ass, she was going to kill me. And I was literally scared to death. And I remember my stepfather, and it's my first stepfather, who, who as far as I, my remembrance is, it was a hero to me. Because I remember him coming home and coming into the bedroom and telling me that he was going to take his belt and he was going to slap his hand with it. And he wanted me to scream each time he hit his hand, which I believe was one of my first acting lessons. Uh, and I remember him slamming his, you know, doing, hitting his hand. And I remember me screaming. And so that gave my mother the satisfaction to, know, to think that I was getting my ass whooped. And I rem also remember him sneaking in uh, food, my dinner to me through my bedroom window. Uh, so I can only assume that my mother was not giving me uh, dinner, but I remember him sneaking a plate of food into me through my bedroom window. And uh, that was, like I said, that it had to be about second grade. And during this time, it was a three-bedroom three house, and it was my mother, my stepfather, my two sisters, my little brother, my grandmother, my mother's mother, my aunt, my mother's sister, her husband, and her three children. It was two, two uh, minors and, a, and a, an infant baby. Now... I do remember that <clears throat> my grandmother got put into a nursing home and we would go visit her. Uh, I always, I remember that I was always blamed for everything. Everything was my fault. My mother and stepfather was always arguing. I was always told that my real dad left us and that he didn't love us. And uh, I literally didn't know what his name was. I thought his name was asshole because that's how, that's the only thing I was ever, you know, that's how he was referred to. Right. And I was, did not love me. And he left us. Well, I know now that he didn't leave us. He left her. The only problem is he left us with her. Now, did she, uh, did, did, you know, you're talking about the, the fear and all that stuff. Did that type of stuff happen with your other siblings? Well, one thing I remember is that whenever something was something happened, we, we would be lined up and we were told uh, all of us were going to get spanked uh, until somebody admitted to it. And I remember that I would always admit to it because I didn't want my, uh, my siblings whooped. Whether I did it or not, I, I'd say I did it. And it ended quickly. Uh, I was used to the weapons. You know, I was used to it. And we're not talking about just spankings. I'm talking about, you know, uh, chopping boards, uh, uh, any things that she had, coat hangers. And it would be, you know, our backs, our, our, our legs, not just our butts. You know, and it was just, she, she, my mother used to lift me up by my hair off the ground. And I remember it. Uh, getting scissors and cutting all my hair off when I was a kid because that way she couldn't lift me by my hair. My grandmother was put into a nursing home. Now we would go visit her. And I remember every time we'd go visit, my grandmother would ask me to massage her leg. 
because it hurts. So I would massage her leg. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm maybe seven years old. And uh, one day we're on the way to the nursing home. And my mother tells me that my grandmother had gangrene and that her leg was amputated and that her leg wasn't there anymore. But she may ask me to massage it because she might think that it's still there. Well, I'm seven years old. I don't understand that. I'm thinking that the last time I massaged it, I did something wrong. So I'm thinking that it's my fault to begin with that her leg is gone. So I remember being by her hospital bed and her leg being gone and her asking me to massage her leg. Mm. Now, other instructed me to go along with it. And I remember pretending the massage her leg that's not there. And that had to mess me up in the head a little bit. Now, during the same time, like I said, my aunt, my mother's sister was living in the house. Well, she had an infant baby that lived in the house. One morning before school, I remember going to his crib. His crib was located in our dining room. And I remember going to, the, to his crib and I remember leaning over the crib and taking his little hand and shaking it and, and you know, doing a little Google guy I talked, you know, but I go, you know. And later that day, I was called to the principal's office and there was a strange lady there that I, I didn't know who she was, but the principal told me that it was a friend of the family and that I needed to leave with her. So uh, there was no words exchanged that I recall on the way to the house. But when I got home, I went in and my aunt and uncle uh, and, and, uh, and siblings were standing in the, in the den with just blank looks on their faces. And I was instructed to go to my mom's room. So I go to her bedroom and she proceeds to tell me that God needed another angel and that he decided to take, take, take baby Mel with him. There's an angel. Uh, I immediately thought, I wasn't told, but I immediately believed that it was my fault that he died because I should, you know, I touched him. Um, and for years I believed that and you know, later on in life, I discovered that my uncle had picked him up and slammed him down because he wanted to quit crying. And uh, he had a fracture in his skull and the uh, fluid leaked from his brain. And that's what happened. And nothing ever happened to him, which I still to this day don't understand. So there was no um, there was no investigation that was done? I, I guess not. You know, because it was, it was ruled as crib death. Uh, it was crib death. That was the ruling. Uh, but I, I do remember blaming myself for that. So um, I believe that my grandmother's leg was amputated because it was my fault. I believe that little Mel died because it was my fault. But I believe that I believed these things because I was always being blamed for everything by my mother to begin with. And she also hated the fact that I looked like my father, my biological father. Every time I would make a face, she would throw something at me, told me, tell me not to make that face because I look just like an asshole. I mean, well, I don't know what I don't even know what he looks like. I, I, I can't help, you know, what I look like. It's not my fault. Uh, but again, during the same year, 
uh, to dissolve during second grade. Uh, I remember my stepfather and my mother sitting me down and telling me that they were getting a divorce. And uh, of course, I immediately felt it was my fault that they were divorced because they were always fighting uh, about, you know, and I was always Johnny this, Johnny that. And uh, so I thought it was my fault. And I was also told that I was going to be going away and that it was going to be like a summer camp. And it turned out to be a mental hospital. What was the justification on that? Do you know? No, I still don't know. And I've tried to get the records to find out what, what were written in those records. But the uh, hospital was, it was the, the Louisiana State Hospital uh, in Mandeville, Louisiana. And it turns out that that hospital was sold to a private company. And they only kept records for the last 10 years. And the rest were destroyed. I, I do remember that while I was there, I was peaceful. I wasn't being beat. Uh, I enjoyed going to class. I remember woodworking. And one of my fondest memories is that there was a play that was put on. And I was cast in the play. <clears throat> and when I was on stage and people clapped, that feeling that I got was acceptance yeah. and love. I'm like, you know, it's like, wow, they love me. They really, really love me. So that's when I decided, I think in my head, that, uh, and believe that that's, that's what I needed was that acceptance. And that was the only way I could get it was through performing, being somebody other than myself, because I was playing a role. So in my head, from that day forward, I believed that I had to be somebody other than Johnny. I had to be a role. I had to be making people laugh. I had to be uh, making people smile, entertaining them in order to um, be loved. You know, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I can literally picture how that works. You know, that you have, you know, coming from an abusive family where you took blame for everything. Uh, you were made to feel horrible about yourself um, and then going into an environment to where now probably your self-esteem and everything that you felt about yourself, you know, was based on that approval that you got from other people. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me too. And, you know, it, it was something that I never understood until, um, uh, the year 2014, when my story really uh, explodes, uh, because I didn't, I didn't, uh, I never looked back and examined my, my childhood uh, because I pretty much put it put it out of my head. And again, I had blocked memories. Now there was something that happened at the hospital that I did not remember until the year 2014, and I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll just say what happened. And then later on, I'll explain how that memory came back to me. But I was sexually abused by an orderly, a male orderly at the hospital. Uh, I remember standing in the doorway of, of my, uh, my room. And I remember him performing oral sex on me. And I'm only seven years old. Uh, but I do remember, even at, at, I would, 
I remember vividly now, uh, again, I never remembered this until 2014, but I do remember that my body reacted. And, um, you, you know, it's weird. It's weird that I never remembered that. And, but then when I did remember it, I remembered it vividly and even remembered how I felt. I, I was confused. I knew somehow that it was wrong because of the way it took place and how he seemed like we were hiding because he was in the doorway, um, maybe away from cameras. Uh, uh, so I was, in a, I was in a mental hospital for nine months. Now, one of the things that I do remember, and this is very, very, people, this is one of the things that people aren't going to understand, and some people don't believe in, but I believe in it firmly because it happened to me, and I've had many different occurrences similar to this. And uh, one of the things that I remember discussing uh, with the therapist, I remember sitting in my bed, terrified, crying and screaming because I was seeing a head, a man's head, just a head floating in the corner of the hallway, just staring at me. And I remember that uh, the, the general consensus was that uh, I was just having nightmares and it must have been brought on by somebody terrorizing me. Uh, you know, may, or you know, somebody that I was afraid of. They, they were trying to figure out who it was. Was maybe a, a school bus driver, or one of the teachers, or a janitor at school. They couldn't figure out who this. Nobody fit this description. Well, at one final point during my stay at the hospital, my biological grandmother, my 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 biological father's mother had caught wind that I was in the hospital and she wanted to know what in the hell was going on. Why was a seven year old in a mental hospital? So she attended one of the meetings. And uh, I remember when she heard the description, I remember her saying out loud, well, that sounds like Johnny Dale. And that's my father's name, Johnny Dale, John Dale. And uh, my mother is sarcastically saying, no, uh, this man is bald. And I remember my grandmother saying sarcastically, uh, Kay, Johnny lost his hair after being married to you. <laughs> she didn't know that, but uh, it all made sense. So my grandmother contacted my father, who was living in California at the time. So he was nowhere near New Orleans. This was, I was living in New Orleans at the time. Uh, and he said that he would often go to bed at night wondering what I looked like, where I was, how was I? And that he would have dreams of me sitting up in a bed, screaming and crying. Well, there's something called astral projection. And it just so happens that that's one of the subjects that my father studied at UCLA. He studied the brain and how it functions. And he's into all of that um, metaphysical and paranormal stuff. And uh, so I believe wholeheartedly that he was, that he really loved me so much 
that he was actually projecting himself to where I was and he was seeing me. And to me, that says that he really did love me. And it was so strong that he was projecting himself. The only problem was I had no idea who he was and it was scaring the hell out of me. And uh, that was the, that was the, the face that you were seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I can, I can, I can, I don't even have to close my eyes. I can still see it. And it, it was him. Cause I know what he looks like now. You know, we finally reunited and uh, I even lived with him for close to a year, uh, a couple of years ago. So I'm in the mental hospital for nine months and all of that happened. Uh, I get out of the mental hospital and my mother has already remarried. Now, one of the problems that I had uh, with my behavior and personality was, was that I would cry very easily. We had a problem uh, with roaches in the house. The house was infested with roaches. And even our school books had you know, uh, roach eggs all around their bindings. And uh, it was, it, it's, our clothes smelled like roaches and it was it was very embarrassing uh my hair was always unkempt my shoes would be tattered um i often uh sometimes uh would wear uh clothes that was passed down from my sister but i was very embarrassed and uh so i remember one day crying because i didn't want to go to school and I remember my mother calling me a sissy and a ninny and a crybaby and her saying, you want to be a sissy? All right. You can put on your sister's dress and go to school in your sister's dress. And she put on my sister's dress on me and shoved me out the door of our house. And I remember crying so, I mean, bawling and looking and seeing at least 10 kids just a hundred feet away from me at the bus stop, all laughing at me. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's something that I think really, really stuck with me uh, through most of my life. It was one of the things that, that, if, that was one of the effects uh, that I suffered through uh, that caused confusion throughout my life. And, uh, that, that, that also was, I think, led to uh, my addiction, my drug use and alcohol use. Uh, that was that had, to, you know, it had to be one of the one of the uh, factors. It was a great uh, way to numb yourself, you know, so you yeah. didn't have to feel. But, but see, I wasn't aware of it. See, that's the thing, because it's for so long, I didn't understand why I did the things I did or why I felt the way I felt, or why I would cry uh, so easily. And it was because of the blocked memories. It was, you know, I, was stu- I still had the triggers, but I, didn't, I, I, I couldn't identify the triggers because I, the memories were blocked, but the effects weren't, mm. if that makes sense, you know? I, I was suffering the effects, but not remembering what was causing the effects. Um, in, in fact, I, at 17, I joined the army and I was discharged from the army for excessive tearfulness. 
I mean, that was written in my papers. Wow. Depression, excessive tearfulness, and uh, failure to adapt to in my environment. I didn't remember the things that went on in that house until 2014 and 1988. My little sister had accused my stepfather, my second stepfather, of sexually abusing her. I was questioned about that, and I did not back her up because I literally did not remember. And I remember saying that I'm not calling her a liar. I'm just saying that I do not remember that. And I would think that I would remember something like that. So I was really confused on the fact that she was really pissed off because I was not backing her up. And she insisted that not only did I know about it, but I was part of it. And I'm like, no way. Uh-uh. And again, I'm not calling a liar. I'm just saying I don't remember that. So she moved away, disowned, disowned herself from the family, never saw her again. And I moved to Texas, got into radio, became a father. And uh, pretty much the family broke up. I eventually moved back to New Orleans. Um, and in 2014, I was on Facebook and I saw a Facebook post about a man, a local man, a local grandfather being accused of molesting his two great grandchildren. And when I read the article, I just had this gut feeling that it was my stepfather. And I said, mm -mm, it's got to be him. And I remember my whole body just getting hot. And, and, and um, I contacted my little sister on Facebook. And I said, have you heard about what's going on? And she said, yeah. Should I talk to the police? Should they try to contact you? to talk to you. I said, well, nobody's, you know, I'm easy to get a hold of. Nobody's, nobody's contacted me. I said, what's, what's the detective's name? She told me the detective's name and just so happened I knew him. Um, he also does some acting on the side and we work together. So I called him and I said, uh, hey man, you looking for me? He goes, no. I said, John May, which was my adopted name. And he goes, you're John May? I said, well, I used to be, because, of course, he didn't know me as John May. He only knew me as Johnny Rock. So, there's your John May? I said, well, uh, I used to be. And uh, he goes, yeah, man, uh, I really need you to come into the station so I can talk to you about your, your stepdad, see if there's uh, any light you could put on the subject. And um, I said, okay. So, I went in. And he said, tell me about your childhood. What, you know, what, what do you remember? I remember in the bathroom, there was a hole under the bathroom sink. And I'm in a hole about this big. I'm not talking about a little hole. I'm talking about a hole about this big, right under the bathroom sink. And I remember being in the bathtub and just looking at it and just feeling uncomfortable. And then also, the bathroom door did not have a doorknob. And I remember always taking a wash rag 
and stuffing the wash rag in the hole because I always felt like somebody was watching me. I always had that feeling like somebody was watching me. And no matter how many times I put that wash rag in that hole, it would always be taken out. And I, got, I remember one day I was washing the dishes and the pots and pans would go under the sink. Well, I remember going to put the pots under the sink and because they were dirty, the cab that under the sink was empty. Well, when I bent down to put the pot there, I noticed there was a hole in the back of the sink, under the sink. And you can see right into the bathroom. So the holes were back to back. You can see right into the bathroom. And so as I'm talking, it's starting to make sense. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then one of the worst memories came to me of me and my older sister having sex in her bedroom. And I remember hearing the sound of a Polaroid camera. You know, when you have a Polaroid, you push that button, the picture slides out. It, was, it wasn't very quiet. There's a noise that it makes. And I remember hearing that noise and I remember turning and looking and seeing him, my stepfather, my second stepfather, shaking the picture. That's what you had to do back then. And then that's all I remember. But it came to me, I remember that this happened often. This wasn't a one-time occurrence. This is something that happened a lot. And then I also remembered that my father was a videographer. My mother was the director of a beauty pageant. So they had beauty pageants that included all ages, which terrifies me to this day because who knows how many children were part of this. I have no doubt that uh, we were videoed, we were photographed, I'm sure things were done with those videos. I'm sure things were done with those uh, photographs. God knows who's seen them. God knows where they're at today. And then I remember attempting to have sex with my little sister and her crying and me stopping because I was confused because I thought this was what we were supposed to do because me and my oldest sister did it all the time. So why is she crying? And I was just confused. And then again, the memory stops. What's the age difference between you and your older sister? So me and my older sister were 10 months apart. Me and my younger sister, I, I think uh, we're like maybe no more than two years apart. Uh, so there's not much of an age gap there at all. As I'm talking about this, the memories are coming back. And then something even more sick and horrific came back to my mind. And that is of my mother calling me into her room to massage her legs, just like my, like I would massage my grandmother's legs. Uh, but there was more to it. 
because I remember her being in uh, a see-through negligee and her telling me things like, okay, she just took her medication, so she may pass out. Uh, uh, and, and just weird things that just didn't make sense to me first until I put it all together. And it was all part of grooming, planning, and uh, a setup or, or something. I, I, I still don't understand it completely. And in a way, don't want to. Uh, but I know that there was things that happened between me and my mother. Uh, and that's that she was, you know, enticing me uh, to uh, uh, or even seducing me. Uh, and I remember my stepfather having me in the bathroom, making me put on my sister's dresses and him doing things to me. And this is where the shame comes in, because I wasn't it wasn't. He wasn't hurting me, you know, it wasn't, I, I felt like, you know, it was, I was, it was again, it was again that approval, like, okay, he loves me. He's calling me pretty. Um, I'm his princess. Um, and I'm doing good. I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm not being blamed for anything. I'm not being treated badly. So again, that's where all the confusion came in. And, uh, Again, all throughout my whole life, I didn't remember any of this. But then once it all came to me, it's like, aha, now everything makes sense. You know, I know now today that none of that was my fault and that um, I'm not really the one to blame. <clears throat> well, yeah, definitely as a child. I mean, there's no blame on your part, you know. But while I'm talking about this and it coming out of my mouth, and the fact that the officer knew me made it even more shameful. It made it more embarrassing because she knew me. And here I am telling somebody that knows me and that I work with all these sick, disgusting things. And, of course, first I'm thinking that nobody else has ever gone through this. Well, when I finally finished, I said, um, and I'm bawling. I said, man, how could I not remember all of that? And then I remember being so, feeling so bad for my sister because she said that I knew. And I did. But I didn't remember. So I know wonder she hates me. You know? So... He tells me, he says, how, how long do you think you've been talking? I said, about 20 minutes. He said, you've been talking for an hour and a half. I said, wow. I said, how, how could I not remember all of that? He said, Johnny, I hear this every single day. And what? He goes, it happens all the time. He said, it's more common than you know, more common than people realize because people don't talk about it because, of course, they're ashamed, they're embarrassed. How do you talk about something like that? Well, of course, if, if this hadn't happened with my great niece and nephew, I wouldn't have gone, I wouldn't have told anybody this stuff. The only reason I was, the only reason I went to the police station was because I was pissed off that they were being abused. 
And I knew it had to be him. So of course I'm going to do something about it. And obviously, and obviously your older sister was sexually abused too by him. Yeah. Yeah. And she, I, I, I do know that she had accused him. Uh, and that was just, it was never reported to the police or anything, but it was, uh, my mother accused her of lying. Nobody believed her. Nobody backed her up. And of course, it just caused division in the family. My mom quit talking to her and she quit coming over and she moved to Mississippi and um, it just wasn't discussed. Um, but I, I always kind of believed that, that it had happened. But I, I just at that time, I didn't, I didn't remember anything. So I, you know. Did you have sex with your younger sister? Uh, you know, she says that, that I did and that we did, but I, I only remember one incident and that's that time that I tried and I remember her crying right at, at the beginning. And I remember stopping and being confused and like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? It's just, it's like, you know, I, this is, this is normal. This is what we're supposed to do. Uh, but she insists that it happened more than once. I don't remember that. And I don't know if I want to remember that. The only reason I would want to remember it is to give her um, vindication or whatever. And, you know, I, I've apologized to her over and over. Uh, but I cannot admit to something that I don't remember. And she wants me to admit to it. I can't admit to something I don't remember. And honest to God, my God struck me dead right now online. I do not remember. I only remember that one incident. After getting, uh, after leaving the police station, and I told her that I apologized for not backing her up years ago. I said, okay, I remember. I told her the things I remembered. And she said that she had written some poems about her abuse on a, on a website for uh, rape victims. And that if I wanted to read them, she gave me the website. So I went to the website and I read the first one and it was about uh, our stepfather abusing her during a birthday party. But the second poem was called The Mother's Prize. And it talks about our mother being uh, addicted to uh, pills and prostituting, prostituting her out. And when I read that, that wasn't something I remembered at the police station. And it made my heart crumble. And I just remember sinking, having this sinking feeling and just saying, no, 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 this can't, no, this did not happen to her. So I messaged her back, because we weren't talking verbally, it was just, messaging on Facebook. And I said, this point, a mother's prize. I said, is this, did that really happen? Or is that just a point? She said, Johnny, you know it happened. You were there. And I'm like, no. No, I wasn't. And she said, don't you remember the long trips to Mobile, Alabama? And then I thought about it for a second. I said, you know, 
I remember being in the car and going on long rides, but I don't remember getting there. I don't remember playing outside with everybody. I don't remember watching TV. I don't remember playing games. I don't remember anything. I just remember the ride. But then, after this day, I started having, uh, you know, memories started coming back to me. Um, certain days, certain events. Uh, I would have like a, like a, it would be like a, a, a little clip, like a snippet. Um, I remember being dressed up like a little girl and being surrounded by a group of men in the woods. And it turns out that in Mobile, Alabama, my stepfather's father lived on an Indian reservation in Mobile, Alabama. And so the only thing I can figure is that we were being taken to Mobile, Alabama, to an Indian reservation and prostituted out. Simple as that. Uh, say simple, but you know, uh, I uh, eventually started uh, producing a documentary on childhood sexual abuse and interviewing numerous people and children, uh, even children uh, with their parents' consent, uh, uh, teenagers and adults. And I've heard worse than this. And when I heard their stories, I thought my stories were bad. I'm like, oh my God, how, how are people getting away with this? And it's because the, you know, the, the, the people that are involved are powerful people. You know, uh, lawyers, judges, police officers, you know, it doesn't, it has, it has nothing to do with the person's uh, background or, you know, uh, anything. It's just what's in their head, I guess, you know. And you, so, so you've seen this on a huge scale. And, uh, and you know, it, it's interesting what you say, because it is very, very common, you know, that. Like our brains have this, our bodies have this amazing ability to disconnect from painful experiences. You know, I mean, psychology has proven that to, you know, where our, our memory disappears, we don't want to remember those things. And, uh, and so the experiences that, you know, you're talking about are much more common. When you're interviewing little kids, um, what does their memory look like? Well, you know, they're, they're, for one, let me just say their parents are sitting right there with them. So there were several children that had came forward uh, right away. So their memories were fresh. Mm. You know, this is, these are children that, that actually said something right away. Mm. And uh, there was, they received justice and the, 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 the people that had done things to them uh, were either incarcerated or was dealt with. Um, so I remember one little boy, for instance, you know, he, he was such a strong and he just said it, you know, he said, no. <laughs> and he said, you see, he said, tell it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that, uh, I wish that would have happened 
you know, when I was a, a, little, a little boy, and I would have said something right away. And I, but, you know, I, I do remember that uh, Child Protective Services, I remember them coming to our house uh, to investigate because of people reporting, uh, either neighbors or relatives making reports. But Child Protective Services would contact my mother and let her know that they were coming. So I remember her going to the grocery and getting groceries and putting everything in the cabinets. I remember her going to buy us new shoes. And, you know, they'd give her time to make everything right. So when they would come, everything seemed normal and everything was fine. So she had that amazing acting ability too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, again, you know, she was she was heavily involved with the community. So, you know, she was a cheerleading coach. Uh, my stepdad was a, was a football coach and baseball coach, and she was a director for the beauty pageant. She had a dance team, a talk team, which was actually, that's how they got their victims, you know, um, which is just, it's really sad. And, you know, like I said, it's just, who knows how many children were um, abused during a time, but. It, it, you know, and it always seems like you hear stories about, you know, it, it was the, the coach or it was the pastor or, you know, these people that are in these uh, positions uh, to they, they, where they can seek out the weak ones. That was that was actually something I, you know, my wife um, went through, had sexual abuse when she was a kid, you know, with her grandfather. And um, and, you know, the question that really, you know, the laws that we have and everything that's in place is to catch them, right? And the goal is obviously to prevent it, you know, which becomes the, the more challenging aspect. And I think you were just about to kind of touch on that in terms of how do we go about preventing is the possibility. And I think, you know, like we look at, I live in California, you know, in California, you have all these parents out there that are fighting not to teach sex education in the school, not to teach substance abuse, that it's important for the families to, um, you know, to teach this stuff. But my question always comes out is, what about the parents that are abusing their kids? You know, like you can, you know, you can do all the say, okay, parents are responsible for this, but what about the parents that are doing this? And so that's where, for me, it becomes so important. I think we educate in schools that we talk about these things outwardly. Because again, and I know by experience that for so many years, the child doesn't know that it's wrong, right. you know, uh, because you're, you're a child and it's not something you're going to talk about because for one, you think it's, you think it's normal and, you know, um, the, the parent may tell you not to say anything. I don't, I don't remember ever being told not to tell anybody. I really do not remember ever being told, all right, this is our secret. Don't you know, tell anybody. I don't ever remember being, being told that. That it was just, it was just a normal thing in your life. You know, it, it brings up, and I, I kind of talked about in the very beginning where I said, um, you know, you know, when does a victim become a perpetrator? Right. And so it always brings the, you know, you know, again, for me, I'm always looking to understand. And that's sort of what I always try to do. You know, if you looked at your, your stepfather that did all of this stuff, what was his childhood like? 
you have any idea? Yeah, see, I, see, I have no idea, but I can only assume that because he was taking us to his father's Indian reservation, that, that it had to be... That was normal to him. Exactly. It was something that he grew up with. To, did you have any, you know, being dressed as your sister's girl, you know, as a woman or girl, stuff like that, did you go through any sexual identity issues? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, only, only when I was, uh, never when I was sober, you know, of course, uh, when I was level-headed and straight. Now, when I was on drugs, that's when, that's when it would, that's when I, you know, like, you know, uh, be confused. And, uh, you know, of course, there was always failure after failure after failure because I knew it was wrong. And it didn't feel right. Uh, and so I would pretty much just embarrass myself. And people would just like, what are you doing? You, know, you need to get your head straight, you know, you figure out what you want. And, you know, so I would pretty much just embarrass myself and piss people off because, they, you know, <laughs> they, they wouldn't get what they wanted. And I, I, I didn't know what I wanted. I was confused. Uh, and so I, I disappointed a lot of people. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I disappointed them and it's satisfying because that certainly made me feel more ashamed today. But uh, yeah, that was one thing that, that always uh, bothered me because, uh, you know, I had relationship problems and, and uh, insecurities and I didn't know, I just didn't understand and now I do, and it, but I still have, you know, uh, difficulty with um, feeling like, uh, I'm, I, you know, um, uh, adequate or whatever the word may be, uh, I'm still dealing with that. I, you know, I still, I, I still, still need therapy. You know, um, I, I've been in therapy uh, several years, but then I've, it's always been interrupted. Uh, my first therapist uh, turned out to be uh, a gay man who I could tell was being excited by my stories. I could see it. He'd be squirming in his chair and he'd start to grin and I uh, started to tell me, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm like, oh, hold on. Yes, there is. Mm. You know, and I just, I just shut down. I'm like, okay, I'm not talking to this dude anymore. So I found another therapist. One day I'm talking to her, I think it might have been my second meeting. And uh, I was looking down and talking and uh, crying. And when I looked up, she had the most horrific, saddest look on her face of horror and sadness. And I went, oh, my God, is this like the worst story you ever heard in your life? And she goes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I had to say, no, but I don't want to make you sad. And uh, so I couldn't really open up to her anymore. Finding that right person, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I want to, you know, I mean, your your story is... is um, very sad, you know, I mean, to have a child have to go through those things. Um, and it, and it makes sense, you know, in terms of your responses to it, getting into the substance abuse. Um, what's really important to me, you know, is that obviously, you know, again, this story is horrific and there's a lot of people out there, just like you identified that have gone through the same thing and even gone through worse. And 
it is obviously very important for people to get educated, for people to know that they're not alone, you know, for people to know that there are people out there, you know, you're an advocate, you know, that's fighting for and working to help people that have been through trauma as a child, sexual abuse, and things like that. What would you say is, you know, and I know for a fact with you that your healing is going to be a lifetime work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be an ongoing process. And, um, but the beautiful thing is that you are working on it and, uh, you know, you're working to be a good person, to be a healthy person. You care about people. I can see that, you know, in you, I mean, the, you know, you talk about when you were a child and, you know, the tearfulness, the crying, you still have that within you. Um, you know, that, that, those things come up. Can you tell there's nothing wrong with that though. You know, that, I mean, you're, you're, you're a guy that is okay with it. You know, you're a guy that that's okay with expressing your feelings. So there's a lot of guys out there. We all have those feelings, but a lot of guys decide to shut it down. You know, I also find you to be an amazing person in being somebody that talks about this. Most men don't talk about this. You know, I've worked with um, a lot of clients over the years. Um, you know, typically, yes, females, it is more uh, percentages higher for females, but there are a lot of males out there that have gone through this. And there's a lot of males that don't talk about this. And so that's the other thing that I, I you know, I'm proud of you, you know, um, in, in that aspect. Um, you know, yeah, I, yeah. Know that I'll, I, I'll be somewhere, I, 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 you know, a public appearance or a show, and I'll have a complete stranger come up to me. Could be a big burly guy, a biker, you know. This guy come up to me and go, hey, man, you're Tony Rock, ain't you? I go, yeah. Hey, man, I just want to say thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. That's all they got to say. I know what they're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. They don't come out now. I've had a few say it. You know, they'll say, I mean, you know, it happened to me too. And I've never told anybody before. And, and when somebody tells you that they've never told anybody before and they're telling you, that's a lot to take on. Yeah. You know, but it's also tells you that you're doing something to help. Yep. So that I, I can't, I can't stop. And it, it, it's something that, you know, I, I've, I've been told by uh, friends and say, man, you know, it's tearing you up. It's taking, it's turning your whole life inside out. And, and you, you're a target to people that, that, you know, are going to accuse you of lying. And I said, you know what? Uh, if I help this one person and I know I've helped people because they told me, I've had one guy message me, tell me he was, he was about to take his life. He was literally about to take his life. And he came across one of my posts. Yes. How can people hate you for that? And, which don't make sense to me, but you know what? They owe it them. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Hundred. We were talking about on the phone because you know y'all you warn of your hate haters, and uh, you know, and for me, I don't care. You know, I really don't care. I mean, this podcast I do, all the things, I don't get paid. I do this for free. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, you know, I, you know, there's nothing that these people can do to me you know, to have you on my show. And that's why I was like, I don't really care, you know? Um, And so, you know, you're an amazing person. 
you really are, you know, and, uh, and you can, you can feel the genuineness, you know, the, I mean, to even think that you would lie about this, have this emotional, have this emotional reactions, the tears, I mean, to come forward and say things like this as a male specifically. Is yes, it- that's exactly. That's what I, I, I've said the same thing. Why would anybody yeah. choose something like this to make up and lie about themselves? Like, are you kidding me? There could be a lot better stories you could come up with. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> so I want to ask you, um, you know, what would be, and I always ask everybody this on this um, you know, if you were to say something to those out there that are going through this, you know, are struggling, what would you tell them? Uh, I would tell them to look for somebody like me and, and like you to talk to. But now in today's, especially with social media, there are so many people, so many podcasts, so many organizations uh, that it's easy to find somebody that's been through the same thing. You just go to that web browser and you type in what happened to you and boom, 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 boom. You see so many hits and you just find the right person. I was relieved when I found out that somebody had been through what I had been through. And it's, but yeah, just seek out the person and, and, and you know, talk to them one-on-one because that's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but talking each time, each Literally, each time I share my story, I feel better. Talk to somebody that's non-judgmental. I do not judge anybody, even my haters. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't hate them, yeah. and I don't judge them. They're going through something, obviously, yeah. that they're dealing with that they haven't dealt with yet. I've talked a lot about, you know, hate, for instance, and I talk a little bit about it in my book. Um, you know, pain, failure, misery are the stepping stones to success, and. You know, just in your life, you know, of what you've gone through, you know, a lot of people that live in hate learned hate. Hate is a taught thing. And yeah, so sure. just in your fashion, again, this could be the empathetic view, you know, for these haters is most likely I would speculate that these people grew up in a family where they were taught hate. And that's what they know. Yeah. And, uh, and so just, you know, as you know, you went through this, the experience and you felt at that time that this is just what mm-hmm. life is. This is just what we do. They fall in that same category. And I believe it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was taught, I was taught to be prejudiced when I was a child, you know, we grew up in that era, you know, in, in the late sixties and early seventies. And, you know, uh, I, I had the hardest time dealing with that. And I, I, I had to literally reprogram my own mind uh, to to not be that way, you know. My my first relationship, uh, I was physically abusive with her, because that is what I was taught. That was the way I reacted because that's what my mom did. She would grab my hair. She lifted me by the hair. She throw things, and so that was the kind of behavior that I mirrored. Mm. And you know, I always felt. Right away, as soon as it happened, my heart was crushed. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I tried to explain, and, and, but, but still, it was my behavior, it was my actions. I had to accept it that I did that. 
and I, I, I regret it, and, I, and I'm sorrowful for it, and I admit it, and I've never laid a hand on another woman since then. But it happened in my first relationship, the mother of my children, and it ruined that relationship. And, but, but she knows, she knows that I'm sorry for that, and I've apologized to her, and she's forgiven me for it. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that I did uh, mirror that behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I own it, and I admit it. And uh, I'll never lift a hand um, to a woman or a child. I've never, I've never uh, hit uh, any, you know, either one of my children. Never. I remember one time taking my finger and pointing like this at my oldest daughter. I did, I did like that, and she pointed at me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, that's it. Um, so I'm totally against physical abuse. You know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not a fan of even spanking. It's not healthy, and as you know, to teach kids through fear. You know, yeah. it's it's just that consequence. If I do this, it's going to hurt because I'm going to be spanked or I'm going to be beat. But there's no lessons that are actually behind that, which you learned that obviously there were so many things that you weren't taught. So yeah, you know, awareness is key to prevention and um yeah so I, I thank you for doing podcasts like this you know? you know what i'm so i'm so appreciative for uh for you coming on here if you want real quick give your contact information if people want to reach out to you uh so if you look up johnny rock and roll radio on facebook you can find me through there uh i have two different pages and um that's the easiest way. Just, just go to a radio station. I'm on, I'm on Apple. Uh, you can go to App Store for Google and Apple uh, and stream uh, johnnyrockandrollradio.com. Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of High Wall Clean. As I always like to say, let's keep getting high, but let's do it clean. I'll see you soon. Thanks.